Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Yes, the Neils are back, my good friends, the Neils. This is not about you needing a doctor. This is about the health of the population. That person needs a doctor, uh, obviously, for complicated reasons. Uh, but you, if you listen to this show a lot, you know we do a lot of shows, a lot of episodes that touch upon various aspects of public health and epidemiology. But one of the shows we've never done is just the question of what is public health? What does that term really mean? Uh, and I... I couldn't have asked. Well, I did ask specifically for the two guests we have today. There's nobody that I would rather have than these two people. Uh, one of them is Caitlin Jettelina, uh, an epidemiologist and author of the Your Local Epidemiologist newsletter, which is in my inbox whenever it comes out. Uh, it's coming out a little bit more often these days, I think. Uh, and then I, I'd heard this person uh, on a podcast, and I was so struck by what she had to say and also the amazing job she was going into at that time. Megan Ranney is now um, both an emergency physician and the dean of the Yale School of Public Health, which has also made a very interesting transition, separating itself and becoming an independent freestanding entity separate from the Yale Med School. So they're both here with us. And and Megan Ranney, I I might want to begin with you. Uh, Obviously, you're just familiarizing yourself with your surroundings there. You started, I think, at the beginning of July. Um, Do you have any sense right now about who's wanting to come into the profession who's wanting to go to the to the school of public health i would have guessed that everything we've been through since the beginning of 2020 would have excited people quite a bit about young people about the idea of a career in public health but what can you tell us about that yeah uh, well thank you for having me on it's an honor to be here both at yale and in the state of connecticut Um, We are seeing an increased level of interest in public health really across the board. Um, Here at Yale, we've seen an increased number of applications for our master's in public health. 
We're also finding increased interest from folks that might not traditionally think of themselves as being part of public health, whether undergraduates or students at the School of Management or colleagues uh, in the School of Architecture and the School of Art. Uh, nationally, we saw a big bump in applications um, for folks wanting to pursue a degree in public health in those first couple years of the pandemic. This last year, numbers stabilized to closer where they were pre-pandemic, um, but uh, still a bit above the, the early baseline. And you know what? I think it's because probably for the first time in my life, there is just about no one in the country uh, who says, what is public health? <laughs> they may not totally understand the answer, but they've all at least heard the term. And, and we're seeing that reflected in increased student interest for sure. Although, Caitlin, there's a way in which uh, if people are very familiar with the term public health and maybe even know the names of some public health officials, that usually means something bad is happening, right? I mean, uh, under ideal circumstances, the work of public health is a bit uh, a little bit more invisible. Yeah, that's right. You know, we kind of joke in public health that when public health is working, it's largely invisible. I think a really great example of that is during the pandemic of the statistic that we don't really talk about that vaccine saved 3 million people in, in the United States so far. We always focus on the deaths and our failures. And so, yeah, it's, um, you know, public health has been in the working in the background a lot over the past decades. But I think Megan and I largely agree that this needs to change, that we need to be better at showing how public health is at work, how we're working in the communities, how we're engaging stakeholders um, to better improve the, the health of our communities. You know, Megan, there was a, um, a graphic or I guess sort of a meme that was making the rounds a few days ago on Twitter that I think is very apropos for our conversation. Uh, it says uh, airbags equal protection, hard hats equal protection, condoms equal protection, sunscreen equal protection, masks equal protection. And then below it, it says mas masking is not living in fear. Uh, it's being smart to avoid damage to your health from a deadly disease. It also protects others, which we should all be doing. So, And we can get a little bit into the specifics of that. But I thought the top part of it was really interesting because that's a lot of the invisible part of the iceberg of public health, right? It is stuff like airbags, hard, hard hats, condoms, sunscreen, uh, worrying or knowing more about the danger from ticks, uh, having safer cars, all those things. This is all public health, although people may not construe it that way. Yeah, I, I love that, that, that analogy. Um, and I'm actually going to expand it a little bit. Um, the practice of public health really is about making it possible for folks to live healthy lives, both physically, but also emotionally and socially. And it's about making it easy for people to live healthy lives. So sometimes it is about taking actions like putting on sunscreen or wearing a hard hat. And it's, of course, about creating the science and the momentum to make that possible for people to keep themselves safe. Much of the start of public health was actually in the occupational safety movement um, at the start of the last century. There's also a lot of public health that is about doing things that you may never notice that keep you safe. Things like clean water and clean air. Again, much of the start of pu public health um, in, in not just the country, but across the globe was around questions around clean water, preventing cholera outbreaks, preventing malaria outbreaks. And those are things that you don't necessarily have to do anything about. But again, there's a science and a practice that helps keep you healthy. And then there's a third part of public health, which is about creating the structural conditions where you are enabled to make your best choices to 
make sure that you and your family are living lives where, again, you both have that physical health. So it's not just about the individual level getting you in to see the doctor when you need it, but also hopefully keeping you out of the doctor's office from the get-go and social and emotional health. So making sure that you have adequate green space, um, which protects us from climate change, but also makes us happier people and gets us outside and gets us exercising, making sure that those things are, are structurally built into our society um, so that you can live your best life. Um, that's that's what our goal is, doing that based off of, of science and evidence um, without you having to spend a lot of time thinking about it or, or maybe even without you having to be intentional. Yeah. And, you know, Caitlin, I think for me, going into maybe 2019 and 2020, my sense of what public health was is a little bit more in the early part of what Megan just said. I was picturing Jon Snow, not the one in Game of Thrones, keeping our water safe from <laughs> cholera uh, and and stuff like that, you know, preventing disease, making sure people get vaccinated. I think I kind of had that latent idea. And, and I think there's sort of a, a lot of people who still think of that as your lane. And if you start talking about gun safety or auto safety or maybe even the HVAC system in your kid's school, uh, they, they, they think, well, how is that public health? Caitlin, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that the traditional sense of public health is around infectious diseases, whether it's SARS-CoV-2 or malaria or tuberculosis. But like Megan was saying, public health is so much larger than that. That is just one small aspect of what we focus on. Um, that we don't just look at diseases like infectious diseases, but we also look at chronic diseases like cancer or diabetes or heart disease. And we also look at what impacts our health. Um, for example, gun violence um, has started to rise in public health the past 40 years and studying it. Uh, food insecurity and a lot of those racism, for example, a lot of external factors that influence our health and our health outcomes and the quality of life that we live. And so all of those things are in our lane. We're all very busy these days. Um, but it, I think it also highlights the importance of our work and the importance of this field moving forward. So, yeah, and I think, Megan, it's really interesting the way all those kinds of things weave together into a health picture. And, and, and so the health picture keeps changing, too. There's During the pandemic, I started listening to uh, a podcast called This Week in Virology, particularly the Saturday Clinical Update with, with uh, Vincent Racaniello, who's been on the show a bunch of times, and Daniel Griffin, this uh, terrific clinician. But what's interesting about that show is COVID which used to be the focus of it, is getting pushed further and further down with these resurgences of malaria, uh, uh, which was just mentioned, um, polio, Hansen's disease, leprosy, uh, things that are happening in this country, often not because somebody went someplace else and, and brought it back. Uh, the way that the climate changes, the way that um, our behavior changes as a result of climate feeds right into some of these things that might seem like just sort of purely medical issues. Yeah, you know, I'm going to put on my emergency physician hat here. I came to the world of public health partly through my clinical practice as an emergency physician. You know, ERs are very much the safety net of the American healthcare system. It is the only place that we take care of folks 24-7, 365, regardless of what insurance they have, what language they speak, where they're from, uh, how much money they have, right? None of that matters when you walk up to the door of an emergency department. 
Because of that, we in emergency departments are also the front line of the public health system. We see these infectious disease problems like malaria, polio, leprosy, Lyme disease, Powassan, I could go on, um, sometimes earlier or more frequently than others. We have that sense of monitoring of the frequency of these sometimes rare, sometimes common diseases um, and can serve as a little bit of a canary in the coal mine for emerging infectious epidemics. But we also see those non-infectious epidemics that Caitlin talked about and that you are alluding to. The fact that climate change uh, drives disease patterns. We know that we're gonna see more people in the emergency department on really hot days. We also see more people on really cold days or certainly we see changes in patterns of visits um, during and after wildfire smoke episodes or, or storms. Um, we understand that the structure of a society interplays with the health of the folks that are coming into our emergency department. And, and so I appreciate that point that it is, yes, about preventing all of us from catching a disease individually, but it's also this much bigger picture. Um, and that, that's really what drove me into this field was as I was taking care of folks in the emergency department, not wanting to just take care of an individual patient and an individual patient, but rather talking about those bigger forces that are getting people to my door in the ER in the first place. And whether it's the decision to vaccinate or whether it's the fact that we are a hotter place and so those malaria carrying mosquitoes are, are living uh, in our water again, um, we've got to talk about those bigger factors or, or else we're, we're not going to maintain the health gains um, of the last century. And in fact, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but we have seen a dramatic decline in life expectancy in the United States over the last couple of years not just because of COVID, but because of other stuff too. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I was at a TEDMED conference, I think in 2016, uh, and the most talked about jaw-dropping presentation at that uh, was one, uh, a study that I'm sure you're familiar with, and it actually involved a, a cohort from uh, from Yale, from Yale undergraduate alumni. But uh, it, it basically the point of the study was that with um, black Americans, if you control for all the other variables... Um, they just have worse health outcomes. Uh, they just have shorter lifespans. That being black is an underlying condition. Uh, and when we saw the presentation, saw the numbers, I mean, it really was kind of shocking to, to that point, Megan, that, that just something like that, that wasn't a disease and it wasn't a behavior. This wasn't about who smokes or who's overweight or anything like that. Those variable, variables, variables were stabilized. Being black is a comorbidity. I, I'm still haven't gotten over that seven years later. And, and just to be clear, that's not because of any sort of genetic predisposition, right? So right. so I don't want folks to hear that and say, oh, well, it's because no. folks who, who are Black are inherently less healthy. It is because of this exposure to constant stress and structural racism and economic disempowerment that actually changes and, and ages your body more quickly. Um, and we find similar findings in other marginalized populations um, outside of the U.S. as, as well as in the U.S. Um, for example, uh, Native Americans um, also have much lower life, life expectancies because of systemic discrimination. Yeah, it so, is, yeah. is mind-blowingly horrific when you actually look at the numbers, though. It is. It is unbelievable. So, and obviously that plays out, Caitlin, across 
a crisis like COVID. Uh, it means that when we start talking about comorbidities and who's at higher risk and who's going to have worse outcomes, it, 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 you're going to start with a population that they're not all hitting off the same golf tees. Uh, there are just some structural unfairnesses that play out there. But I wanted to just spend a little bit a moment with you. And by the way, everybody should be getting your local epidemiologist newsletter. It's really good. It's also very short. Uh, Caitlin talks and writes the way you think. It, it, you're not going to be over bowled over by a lot of terminology you don't understand and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, you look at, as an epidemiologist, you look at populations. Most people care about themselves. <laughs> Most people want to know. Like, for me, I, I'm really, really studious about all this stuff. But I have to go to a wedding in Boston this week. And, you know, I'm, I am mask in almost all situations. I mask if I'm alone in a room and nobody's coming in. Uh, no, it's not quite that bad. But, um you know, I want to know how to get through this wedding. Uh, I don't, and, and so everybody wants that, right? They want a piece of information that will help them get through the next 48 hours. And, and I think some of the job that public health and that you do, Caitlin, is how to take a lot of generalized information and then present it in a form that's actionable for the average person. Could you just say a little bit about that? Yeah, that's at least what I try to do. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that it wor- it's working on your end. You know, I think it's one thing that we've dramatically um, missed throughout the pandemic is scientific communication or knowledge translation in a, in a way that, like you said, is actionable. What does this mean to me today? Um, if I want to be a good citizen, if I want to go to a wedding and I want to be as healthy as possible, there are things we can do on an individual level as well as a population level. And so the, the challenge, though, is the amount of information that was coming to us and still is coming to us. Um, so one processing that we call it an infodemic, but but also wading through and thinking through risk tolerance and how risk has changed um, over time and what people some people are comfortable with and some people are not comfortable with. And so it's it's a very very challenging thing to do, but I think us in public health need to be um, a whole lot better at it. Well, I think Megan. Also, another thing that's happening. This will be my last question before we go to a break. But another thing that's happened. I think never, maybe never before, have so many people who are not clinicians and not public health officials and don't have a lot of training beyond whatever basic education they've gotten are trying to understand medical and scientific facts uh, and, and may even be seeking them out uh, in a much more affirmative way. And and so I'll just give an example of something that's in the news this week, a little bit in the news. Actually, it's barely been covered at all, but for geeks like me, I'm aware of it. And it's something that actually, I think, originates out of Yale School of Public Health, although well before your arrival there. And that is actually a study in, of all things, Connecticut prisons of of COVID transmission. And uh, the way that I, anyway, interpreted it was that they were sort of looking at uh, what kind of protection against infection was conferred by vaccination, depending on whether your exposure uh, to to an, another infected person was low, moderate, or, or high. High being your cellmate has COVID, uh, and moderate being somebody on your cell block has COVID, and low being you really not, you're really not near any of those kinds of people. Um, and you know, there's a, I think Megan a natural human desire to say, hmm. 
I wonder how can I can apply that to my life, to my decision about the wedding I'm going to, which is an insane <laughs> thing to say. But on the other hand, I think this is part of the, the communication thing that we're going to be talking about a little bit later on this show, right? Somehow or other, you've got to take that and tell people what, if anything, at this you know, limited moment it means to them. I love that. First of all, I love the study. I thought it was terrific. Got at this core question that so many of us have had throughout the COVID pandemic. But then, yes, to your point, our job as public health professionals is not just to do the science, but is also to make that science actionable by individuals, by communities, by our states, and ideally by actionable for our entire society. And we need to work in conjunction with the public to do that. This is, at the end of the day, about public health, just as you are public radio. This is about involving are the communities in which we live and practice and making sure that those questions that you have when you read the article get answered and that you have a place that you can go for trusted information. And I agree, Caitlin Substack is a wonderful newsletter, um, one of uh, a few that I think is one of our, our most trusted sources throughout the pandemic. Um, but to make sure that you have those um for other topics too, to try to put new news in context and to be able to think about, again, what to do individually, but also what should you ask the wedding organizers to do, right? There's some some really interesting larger questions as well. All right. So we're going to take a little break here. We're going to be back. These two guests are with us for the entire show. Uh, we'll take a little break and we'll come back. We'll talk about other aspects of public health. We're talking uh, to uh, Caitlin Jadalina, an epidemiologist and the author of the Your Local Epidemiologist newsletter, and uh, Dr. Megan Ranney, an emergency physician and dean of the Yale School of Public Health. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of human nature uh, and, and how human nature factors into the kinds of warnings and information we can get from public health. And, and before I go to the two guests, so... I guess it was sort of around last March, maybe, um, we had the amazing novelist Emily St. John Mandel, uh, who in several of her novels, I, I think two or three of her novels deal in one way or another with pandemics, Station Eleven being the most famous one. And and you know, over the course of our conversation, she said, you know, one of the things that she started to understand as just as a novelist studying pandemics is that there's usually some warning that isn't heeded. Uh, and here's a little bit more about what Emily says. This is B2Cat. We just don't want to think about it. You know, we want to believe that life will just kind of continue in this sort of, you know, pleasant or at least tolerable or at least unsurprising way day by day by day without some kind of 
insane rupture in the timeline, like the 9-11 attacks or um, or the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, so you're right. We absolutely act counter to our best interests all the time on the societal level. Um, the Trump administration disbanded the office that was responsible for planning uh, pandemic responses. You know, it's just like, yeah, because yeah, I guess on some level, enough people believed that it was just never going to happen. So I'd like both of you to react to that particular clip, but maybe, Caitlin, get us started here. This is so much of the rock that you're rolling up a hill, right? I can give you information that will prolong your life or give you better health or help you ward off disease and disaster. But will you listen to what I have to say? Will you act on that information? Then the human factor comes up. But go ahead, just react. What my, my first thought after hearing that clip was what we are challenged with all the time in public health, which is this cycle of panic and neglect. And this the cycle of panic and neglect, it's it's not new. It's not just for COVID-19. The idea is, I, I think it was coined after Greek mythology in which this trickster who receives internal punishment for trying to cheat death was condemned by gods to roll a boulder up a steep hill for eternity. And every time he reached the top of the hill, the rock rolled back down, forcing him to start all over again. Um, And COVID-19 isn't the first boulder we've pushed up a hill. You know, uh, um, the SARS epidemic is a great example after making the vaccine, H5N1. Um, having that pandemic office, like she mentioned, and then getting it disbanded. You know, it's one hope that us in public health had after the COVID-19 pandemic that we would finally change this model, right? Losing 1.5 million lives in the United States should surely change something. Um, And it's been really hard to actively watch that boulder roll down back down the hill again. Um, And, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. We can implement lessons learned. We can implement change. Um, But it's incredibly challenging to do in, especially in the United States, in this really politically decisive um, landscape and a very tired landscape. We're all exhausted from this. Um, But something needs to change. Yeah, and Megan, you know, at the end of the so-called pandemic emergency, there was almost this kind of federal curtain call. Oh, thank you very much. You know, pandemic's over. And and all kinds of things uh, that um, that were important kinds of interventions and that were good public health measures, including just getting more people on Medicaid, uh, getting better and freer access to vaccines and tests, started to go away as if we were never going to have any problems again. But I just, once again, react any way you want to. Yeah, I, there are sometimes where it kind of reminds me I, I, of the way that my children uh, react to problems, which is, you know, if I pretend it's not there, then it doesn't exist. <laughs> and and sadly, that's not true for public health. If, if we pretend that problems aren't there, they do still exist. And in fact, they, they get worse. Um, but to go off of what Caitlin said around the cycle of panic and neglect, I agree completely. I think part of it is that we in public health need to think deeply about Uh, yes, how to communicate with the public, but we also need to make sure that these interventions are sustainable, easy, that they feel normal. You know, the same way that right now, very few of us would get in a car and not put that seatbelt on. The rest of these public health interventions, whether it's making sure we have adequate data to be able to track the spread of disease, or whether it's making sure that our neighbor down the street has adequate health insurance so they don't go bankrupt if they're in a car crash, 
um, that those things are expected as normal. And finally, part of that public health mission has to be making sure that this is an economically uh, sustainable and positive intervention, that businesses see the value, school systems see the value, governments see the value, and each of us individually says, you know, it's worthwhile for us to invest either as a family or as a community in some of these very basic measures, because the payoff, you know, for this a few cents of investment is dollars or tens or even hundreds of dollars um, down the road. And, and so we need to think about that kind of business side of stuff at the same time that we're thinking about the health science side um, of, of public health. Caitlin, on the other hand, I think all of this very sensible stuff that both of you are saying bumps up against a particularly kind of a, an American trait uh, and an American value. And the American value is often framed as freedom. Um, I think what is really meant in these situations when people talk about freedom is individualism. Uh, there's kind of a sense that I am a, a, an individual. I can do what I want. Uh, and that then kind of turns into, so I don't have to care about population studies. I have to care about myself and whether I think it's worth it to go to a bar without a mask on. Um, and if it's worth it to me, that's fine. End of conversation. And it seems to me that's another thing you're struggling against, particularly, I think, in this country. But maybe you could say something about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, this this concept of individualism has been a constant challenge for public health because the whole idea from public health is to help populations at a time. We're treating populations, not individuals. So right off the bat, it's it's a challenging give and take. Um, and we have a very much of a culture of individualism. And something, one big lesson I learned throughout the pandemic was that, and this may seem obvious to a lot of people, but it wasn't to me as an epidemiologist, was that policy isn't just driven by science. It's not just driven by epidemiology. It's also driven by morals and values and psychology and a complex constellation of factors. And so that to me really shown shine through throughout the pandemic. The challenge also with individualism isn't just that it um, challenges the frame of public health, but it, it infectious diseases violate the assumption of independence. What you someone else does next to you, wear a mask, test, get sick, directly impacts their neighbor. Um, and this is different than, for example, diabetes or heart disease, right? So if someone next to you has diabetes, you're not going to necessarily get diabetes. And so it's a whole different frame shift as well. But I think us in public health can't need to do a better job at, I keep, I'm going to keep coming back to this, is, com is communicating, is showing that, hey, you know what? We can be a whole lot more free if we're a whole lot more healthy and, and, challenging people to think through that these aren't necessarily competing demands, but rather they are complementary. And if and when we can get that through that, if you get vaccinated, hey, your kids won't be missing school as much. Or if you wear a mask, hey, you'll be healthy enough to go see grandma at the nursing home is something that um, I, I think we as public health leaders can can do a lot better job at doing. 
I think a lot of that also is the way that information is presented. And so, uh, Megan, uh, in professional sports, there's often a player, if you're watching a, a show, who's agreed to wear a mic. Uh, so, and then he, he clearly doesn't say a lot of the things he typically would be saying to his opponents. Uh, but you've done the same thing. Uh, th- here's a little clip from uh, Megan Ranney. Uh, she's uh, working uh, as an ER physician. Uh, and so, uh, for the podcast In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt, uh, she mic'd up. This is during the Omicron wave. This is a a B1 cap. I'm walking into my shift and signing in. Um, I'm not sure. There are fewer patients in the waiting room than we've had in the last couple weeks. It's only a few dozen. And the wait's only about four hours to get seen. So it feels like this could be a good day. And he goes on from there. But I mean, Megan, to me, that can maybe be a little bit more effective and and maybe even a lot more potent than being on this show, just talking as as you're doing so effectively uh, as as a public health educator and a physician, letting people hear the real thing. So I I think there is absolutely value in sharing those personal stories. Um, And in fact, when I teach students, I often talk about sharing stories as being one of those core functions of public health communication. The other part of sharing stories though, is making sure that you're sharing both a story and then an action based off of facts. And I think that one of the things that makes public health different from just being a politician is that we are committed to sharing those stories, drawing off of good scientific evidence. And so when I give those lectures to my students, I say, start by knowing the facts, then share your personal stories, and then use those to drive evidence-based action. And that recording that I did with Andy was largely to both shed a light for folks on what it was like to be an emergency physician at the height of the COVID pandemic, but also to talk about where we were in terms of the quality of the science and what we could each do individually, but also, again, as a community, as the public, to help keep healthcare systems able to function during those very difficult times and help keep our parents and loved ones um, healthy and out of uh, the emergency department. Um, so it's it's always a balance of if sharing those stories and then matching them um, with, with that, as to use Caitlin's word, that complementary part on the other side of, of where we go from it, because there's a fear of despondency. And I just go back to your comments about firearm injury earlier, both Caitlin and I uh, pre-COVID spent a lot of our time working on violence as a public health problem. And I think right now it's very easy in sharing stories to either become numb or to become hopeless. And so I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that those uh, stories of both survivorship and victimhood get shared, but then we know what to do with them on the other side. Um, because that becomes the danger, that it just becomes a story of pathos um, rather than a, a story of hope. Yeah, I just preparing for the show, I listened to you at the Aspen Ideas Festival or some kind of Aspen broadcast, share a story about treating a, um, a Rhode Island policeman who was not in a good place mentally uh, and and had come to the ER and wasn't really admittable, but uh, there was a whole question of locking up the firearm. You worked it out. I'd have you tell it, but we're pressed for time here. But you worked it out <laughs> so his, his wife would lock up the, uh, the firearm. I thought that was sort of an amazing story and just such a great example of how a public health person or a physician can kind of intervene, maybe find a solution that's safer for everybody. Um, so I want to get into a slightly 
delicate area here and one that I think is probably very troubling to both of you. And, and Caitlin, I'll start with you. Another thing that has happened, I'm sure it's not the first time in history it's happened, but it happened in a very pronounced way over the last three years, is that people in jobs like yours became targets for harassment, for, as you've written, harassed coffee shops, death threats, doxing, which is private information being shared, hacking, getting sued, handwritten letters in the mail, emails pointing gun barrels at them, heads added to pornographic pictures, on and on. This is obviously not what anybody signed up for when they went into epidemiology and public health, but it really seems like, at least at the moment, it's baked in there. And I'm wondering if maybe learning to cope with that is going to be part of the job here. Maybe you could just say a little bit more about, I know you've experienced some, a lot of this. And and so what's that like and how are you feeling about it right now? Um, it is not fun. I will say that. Um, and you're right. It's it's not anything us in public health and epidemiologists, some random scientists ever thought they would ever have to cope with or deal with. Um, not just me, but also my family um, and what uh, stress it's put them through. I, I don't know if it's going to get better. I look at climate change scientists that have been put through hell for the past couple of decades, and I kind of see public health um, uh, be, being categorized kind of in that way, particularly among public-facing scientists um, and ones that are speaking out and um, trying to uh, either challenge disinformation or just provide some sort of um, guidance for people looking for answers. I, um, I, I I hope that's not the case, but it's it is a concern, and um, yeah, it's it's not fun, and I I think it's very dangerous. Yeah, and, and Megan, I'm wondering about just part of education, part of training uh, in public health. Is this going to be, or perhaps it already is? just right in there, not maybe as a full semester, but a kind of mini course and how to take care of yourself in these situations. Yeah, well, I think we're seeing, unfortunately, an increase in workplace violence and directed threats, not just in public health, but in health care. Heck, we're hearing about increased threats about against flight attendants and postal workers. So there is a larger problem in our society right now. I do think um, and am committed to training our next generation of public health professionals in how to communicate effectively, but also how to take care of themselves. Um, It is essential that we continue to be persistent voices for the science of public health, for the actions that can be taken by societies and communities to keep themselves healthy. Because if we are silenced, then the world becomes less healthy. We ourselves, but also our kids and our neighbors um, are are going to be worse off. And so we need to learn both how to share information in ways that are comprehensible, but also how to be resilient ourselves um, in the face of a a world that is sadly quite divided um, at this moment. Although the one thing I will say is that those folks that are making threats are the vast minority. And when you actually look at surveys of the American public, Many of us, depending on which survey it is, many to most, uh, do agree on a lot of the same basic concepts. And so to me, part of our job is making sure that everybody's exposed to accurate information and true stories um, rather than being exposed to to lies or disinformation. It's about sharing the message. um, And and that is absolutely a core function um, of ourselves as a school, um, but of the larger field uh, of public health. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, Both of these guests will be back for a final segment. Uh, So let's do that, and then let's come back. To, uh, we're back, and first of all, our technical producer uh, is, uh, as usual, Cat Pastor. Uh, the producer of this episode is our senior producer, Lily Tyson. I should say that if you're listening to our uh, show in sequence, tomorrow's show will be about ticks. So we're going to continue a little bit with talking about this. And senior producer Emeritus Betsy Kaplan, who many people know is also a nurse, is working on a show about burnout uh, in the medical professions, uh, and that'll be coming up fairly soon, I hope. So we'll stay with this topic, but right now we're so lucky to have with us Caitlin Jettelina, uh, who is the, uh, an epidemiologist and author of the Your Local Epidemiologist newsletter. Megan Ranney is an emergency physician and the new dean of the Yale School of Public Health. So I, I, I want to end on a somewhat hopeful note here. <laughs> so let's talk about doing it better. Caitlin, one thing that you suggested is maybe public health needs some kind of a, a rebrand. Say what you mean by that. Yeah, you know, it, I've been I've been thinking a lot about this. I don't know if it's a rebrand or a reimagining, but really updating the public health field as well as our goals and our brand for the 21st century. I still feel like we are stuck in the 19th century, um, really fighting 21st century threats. Um, and so that means to me getting the public back in public health through community engagement through stakeholder, through trust and messengers, um, through uh, better data systems, better innovation, and better sustainability. Um, I, and it's it's needed, not only externally, right, as the public looking into public health field, but also I think we need it internally. And you started off the show talking about the great uh the in- increase in students coming to public health. And I'm I, I'm very excited about that because we need energy, we need ideas, we need new novel approaches. Um, and that's going to help uh, with, with that, with the new students, um, with the diverse type of students coming in. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited for the field. Um, Megan, as you look around, either around this country or the world at large, are there one or two examples of people or systems doing it well that excite you and seem applicable maybe to the greater system here in this country? That's a great question. Well, I'll say that Caitlin does it very well. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm thrilled to be on uh, the, the radio with her today. Um, there, there are some systems that do a better job of uh, supporting public health. Um, Some countries in East Asia, like Taiwan, um, some countries in Europe, um, for example, Switzerland. Um, But to Caitlin's point, I I do think that we are at an inflection point um, for the field, where as we think about the future of public health, yes, we should celebrate all of these great successes that we had in the uh, early 1900s up through the end of the 20th century. 
But this is a moment that demands that we think differently about what the future of public health looks like. How do we uh, increase our inclusivity? How do we make sure that that community voice is part of public health? How do we improve our commitment to practice, to translating that science into action? How do we make entrepreneurship and that economic um, imperative be part of the science and practice of public health? And how do we train the next generation of students to be excellent communicators, to follow in Dr. Jetalina's footsteps? Um, to me, that is the question. And I don't know that there is any institution or country or even state across the world that I know of that has yet succeeded at creating that redefinition. I think it is going to be the task for those of us that are lucky enough to be in leadership positions in public health as we go into the next couple of years. Um, and stay tuned because we're hoping to take that on here at, at Yale um, and, and we'll certainly be working with the Connecticut community as, as we start to engage in that inquiry about what the future looks like. You know, Caitlin, it's also hard when we look to other countries because other countries are, are not this country. Uh, and for example, you know, Vietnam seemed to do uh, really well with uh, with COVID or at least relatively well with COVID compared to a lot of other countries. There was a lot of comparisons here in this country made by the sort of the Joe Rogan verse to Sweden, where Sweden was supposedly kind of letting it rip uh, and, and getting really good results. And what I always point out to those people is when you look at Sweden, um, it turns out that uh, in terms of percentage of population fully vaccinated, they're six points ahead of us. It's not like they, nobody got vaccinated. More, a greater percentage of the public got vaccinated, irrespective of what the public policies were. But, you know, Caitlin, that has a lot to do with people's attitudes about community, about how whether they feel about caring for one, caring for one another as a major life responsibility. Also, it has something to do about the carrying capacity of the health systems. Are there long wait times? Are there paid sick leaves? I mean, uh, you can't just sort of look at a society and say, well, we should do that one thing that they did or not do the one thing that we did because these societies are in no way identical. Great. It's really challenging to compare across states, let alone countries, because what, what works in one country doesn't necessarily work in another and vice versa. But I do think we can learn lessons from each other and we should, um, but they must be adopted in our own context. One theme throughout the pandemic is the countries that did the best weren't necessarily the best prepared, weren't necessarily the, the most funded, didn't have a certain type of ruling. The countries that did the best had the most trust in their communities, period. And so my biggest focus going forward is how do we build trust in public health? How do we not only build trust, but um, uh, be trustworthy, right? It, it, it's it's a lot on our end. And if we can do that by engaging communities, by listening rather than hearing, and by putting the public bath in public health, I think we'll be a whole lot better off um, than we were during this pandemic. Um, it's just going to take time and it's going to take a lot of effort. And uh, it's it's challenging to see going forward because a lot of us are tired right now. Um, but I, I do have hope uh, and I am starting to see change in the right direction. Um, Megan, this last question, I only have a couple of minutes left and this is a big topic. But one thing that I was thinking a lot about preparing for this show is the communication between the public health 
community slash establishment in physicians and clinicians and the people who deliver care directly. And, and, and I wonder if that's sort of part of the curriculum there at Yale School of Public Health, the, the whole idea that my physician needs to know what you know in public health and public health needs to know what my physician's finding out uh, on the front lines. Is, is that an area that needs improvement? Absolutely. I frequently talk about public health and healthcare really existing as an overlapping set of circles, a Venn diagram, if you will. If you remember back to high school math, um, we need to strengthen that area of overlap. Healthcare cannot succeed without intersection with the public health system and vice versa, while also recognizing that there are areas that are separate and that will never overlap. And Thinking about your upcoming discussion about burnout in healthcare workers, heck, a lot of that is because so many public health functions have been pushed onto healthcare workers who have inadequate resources and are facing, you know, again, structural societal problems um, in the halls of their hospital or their clinic. Um, we need to do better um, for those healthcare workers so that you have someone sitting there in the ER ready to take care of you or your loved one when you're sick. Um, but also for greater society so that we can, in public health, see what our healthcare colleagues see. All right. We have to stop there. It's a fascinating conversation. I was so glad to have uh, these two people. Caitlin Jettolina, uh, author of the Your Local Epidemiologist ah, Your Local Epidemiologist newsletter. That should be in your inbox. So work on that. Uh, Megan Ranney is the new dean uh, of the Yale School of Public Health and an emergency physician. We will thank you for listening, and we will be back tomorrow with ticks. Yeah.